<laughs> oh hell no, you didn't. I know you just didn't. Did you, you better Dude, get what? that recording? You didn't fill your glass yet? Yeah, my, my glass is filled. What else my you got to do? Filled. We got to start this podcast. You get crunk out here, and we need we need to go. The people need their history lesson. Uh, what's up, you beautiful people? This is Gary Horde, and this is this is pro wrestling history where we do a deep dive that's dedicated to, to removing the gatekeepers. We'll give you everything you ever wanted to know about the one true sport, professional wrestling. I just started this. I just went ahead and hit record, even though Rob's not ready, because I had to be up early in the morning, and we got to record this episode. By the way, I'm Gary Horn, and uh, Will's here, too. Hey, hey Will. Will's here. Will Martin. <laughs> at this is Will Martin. At this is Gary Horn. And also at this is Dr. Stinson. Man, I, I want to. We need to do it when we at some point when we get into like the 2020 2021s of this podcast, we have to talk about the evolution of Will Martin. <laughs> you know, we went from to uh, no, he started out with Hayes Will, Hayes Will Daily. I was a big fan of Hayes Will Daily. I know you were. You know? That's how we that's how we became friends. You were met. just like, that's how we met. That's like I like this guy. I like this show. I remember the first time we spooned, bro. The first time we spooned, we <laughs> talked about that junk, man. And uh, then uh now now it's like this is Will Martin. You know, yeah, you trying, and, yeah, and there trying. are like there are four evolutions between that. <laughs> like it's like, hey, it's Will Daly, then hey, it's Will, hey, it's Will Martin, Will Martin. Look. You know, you know what you call you know what you call something that doesn't change dead. dead. So Boom. I will always be alive and evolving and changing. But I just wanted to join the brand. This is my I'm showing solidarity with you guys. We are now Branding. all because you know Gary. Gary used to be rock and roll Gary, and then right. he's like, you know what? I'm all in. This is this is pro wrestling. So I'm this is Gary Horn. And then Rob was like, you know what? I'm into. And then I was the last one, but I was finally like, hey. I'm into this is Will Martin. No, Dude. I was the last one because, yeah, you were the last one to do this is Will Martin. But then when you did it with all lowercase, I went back and changed my uppercases <laughs> to lowercases. I reinvented that this is Dr. Stinson. I didn't want to draw attention to the doctorate. You know, it's yeah. not about about me. If y'all want to, well, you know, if y'all want to say I'm I'm a I'm a Jesus space god. If y'all want to call me Jesus, that's on you. That's not me <laughs> saying that. That's on you. <laughs> that's well, what the people uh, say, and that's what. It- this is an especially saucy episode. You can already tell. Uh, Dr. Stinson is feeling good. <laughs> this is going to be a fun one. Uh, I'm just going to jump in. <laughs> so giggly. He's just he, tickled listen, right up I, top. I don't want to speculate, but but in preparation for this episode, he did leave to go refill his glass several times. So I don't know how much he's drank. <laughs> But with this, look, well, it's, not how, it's not, it's not, not how much it's, it's not how much it's what, because this okay. is, and, and Gary, Gary will tell you, you got a bottle beside you, Gary, you got that, no. that white label beside you. I do not. I have a glass tell of what wine, it says on it. like a classy right now. Oh my gosh. It's not classy. That's some doggone, uh, uh, Keon, that's some Chianti right there, man. That's some $6 Chianti. You got Lava a bottle bean. or food yep. city or whatever, which by the way, food city does not endorse us but we do endorse them i don't even know what that is tell, tell it's where you got that chianti tell will what's on the front of that that white label bottle it's like 100 proof it's like but bo- uh, bo- branded and bonded or something i don't remember yeah, bottled and bond man 100 proof hundy that's a hundy right mm. there wow yeah so it's not yeah. how much it's what but it's but it's also a little bit how much because you've had several <laughs> 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 
You can't you can't say that's not a factor. <laughs> Last episode it was me, but this episode it's gonna be Dr. Rob. And by by the end, it's like, gonna be man. about how much. I'll be like, look, I don't even know how you say Jack Pfeffer's name. It might be Pfeffer, it might be Pfeffer, whatever. I don't even, whatever, skip past it. And this is when Luthes beat Nick Aldis. <laughs> they told him Oh, that was in my dream. He told him Hulk Hogan don't stand a chance coming up in here. Anyway, all right. Well, uh, we're going to try to move on here. We're going to see how that goes. As always, a reciting of what we're doing. Our goal is to tell you the tales, explore the stories, and regale you with the legends of all the great Mm. athletes and characters from the world of pro wrestling. Right now, if you're just joining us, you're dropping in on part six of this epic journey. Six parts already, and it's going to be plenty more. Highlighting the history of the whole damn thing. Keep in mind that we're only painting with broad strokes here. Sure, there'll be details here and there, but deep dives into individuals will come. But for now, we're just skipping along the timeline, frolicking, as Dr. Stinson is apt to do through the timeline. Mm. We're getting there. So whether it's your first episode or your last, thank you for hanging out with us. We have been and always (laughs) shall be your friends. I don't know. Don't make it. Listen, we get it gets better every show. There's if there's one promise we can make to you on this is pro wrestling, next week will be better. I think that's I think that's accurate. That's a that's a standard. That's our motto. So stay tuned. Also, sometimes we forget, but we must give a huge shout out and all of the credit in the world to two bucks, two books, (laughs) the young bucks, two bucks. (laughs) No, was a stupid joke. Yeah, not there yet. Yeah. Uh, to two books, especially on this first series, Aubrey Sitterson and Chris Moreno's The Comic Book Story of Professional Wrestling and the great Brian Solomon's Pro Wrestling FAQ. These folks have two of the best, most fun books on the sport that you can find. So much of our research is from them, and it'd be wonderful if you'd show them some love. Go buy their books. They're available on Amazon. They're easy to find. All right. There's one other too that that's particularly important in, in this episode, and that is Tim Hornbaker's National Wrestling Alliance. And let me let me let me emphasize this: we revere Brian Solomon. We call his book the Bible. We do it regularly. If you, you go back in our backlog of of content, when we say the Bible, we're not talking about the King James version. We're not talking about the New American Standard of Good News. We're talking about Pro Wrestling FAQ, the King which Solomon we rely version. On the King Solomon version. That's the one. According to King Solomon, if he could take one, one graduate school course, one graduate school level course on pro wrestling, it would be the course offered by this man, Tim Hornbaker. And it would be on this book, the National Wrestling Alliance. He called it, he called it the most indispensable book in the history of pro wrestling. And so we rely on this book a lot tonight too. So I had to I had to go out there, man. It's a beautiful book. I've got three or four copies because I write in mine a lot, and I and I have kids, I have daughters, and they spill things. I have one that's like autographed, and then I have a couple that I write in. But this book is indispensable for your library, National Wrestling Alliance, the untold the untold story of the monopoly that strangled pro wrestling by the great Tim Hornbaker. Get that book too. Show him some love. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and and we're gonna get more and more into that one as we go back through the NWA, I'm sure. And uh this is this is our big one. This is uh we're getting right into the National Wrestling Alliance. As you know, if you listen to this show, we're huge fans of the National Wrestling Alliance. And this episode in part six, we're diving right in. We're finally at that period. When we last left pro wrestling, we were in the roaring twenties and we witnessed the rise of the gold dust trio. Safe to say, a very impactful group. It definitely a place you'd stick a pin in if you were mapping significant events in professional wrestling. Uh, as impactful as they were, though, the trio really lasted for a blink of an eye. Uh, by 1928, power struggles and the questioning of Ed Strangler Lewis's conditioning, they all led to a dissolving of the group. Uh, most of the work had been done, though. Uh, as we discussed last week, whether you give the trio all the credit or some of the credit, uh, one thing is for certain, they were at least a microcosm of the evolution of the one true sport as a whole. Slam bang Western style wrestling was here. Uh, regards to the Gold Dust Trio, Rob, did you feel like we missed anything or anything you wanted to make sure we covered? Or uh, no, I mean, uh, you know, they they irreversibly changed the sport. You cannot underestimate. I mean, you got Sandow in that group. You got Tootsmont. You got uh, Ed the Strangler Lewis. Ed the Strangler Lewis was the star of the day, but Toots Mont's footprint on the sport lives with us to this very day. And although people talk about the Gold Dust Trio all the time, they were short-lived. It was what about like five, six years, something like that, before yeah. they broke up. There was a there was a falling out between Sandow and uh, uh, Toots or Sandow's brother and Toots Mont or whatever. And they all ended up going their separate ways. But there can be no doubting that their impact on the sport resonates to this very day. So you can even call the Gold Dust Trio and probably specifically Toots Mont the inventor of the modern version of the one true sport. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. We also discussed a bit afterward, taking us into the 30s. Uh, wrestling was splintering into different groups and now so had the Gold Dust Trio, obviously. Uh, our boy Toots Mont ended up traveling to Philadelphia. Rob briefly mentioned some of this last week. He was uh, slowly inching his way to New York is where he was headed. And it's there he found, I think, uh, well, in Philadelphia, it's there where he found, I think uh, Rob called him something like wrestling's first sex symbol, uh, the golden Greek, Jim Londos. Uh, his physique and good looks would take him right to the hearts of wrestling fans. And in 1938, also the lineal World Heavyweight Championship. Around the same time was when Jack Pfeiffer was giving his tell-all to the media and destroying the reputation of wrestling, which you would think would have the dude blackballed, but nah. Puppeteers all play a different game than us little folk. And uh, when you're playing for money, it's a different game indeed. So we'll see Jack Pfeiffer pop back up. Jack Curley, I don't know if you guys remember him. He was a big-time promoter who set up that Gotch Hack and Schmidt matchup. He was running New York like a mafia boss. He was effectively the king of New York. Well, that was really Tootsmont's goal is to get into New York at some point somewhere. Uh, him and his buddy, I feel like I read somewhere in here, like even Jess McMahon was like his his – business associate during this time but he was working his way there well in 1937 jack curley passed away and it effectively created not exactly a power vacuum but partnerships were born in old toots he, he shot a shot and he moved in he brought a bunch of folks with him even 
at this point, welcoming Jack Pfeffer back into the fray because he liked money more than real fighting, and that was a skill Jack possessed. So Mont would also go on to train guys like Antonio Rocca uh, and the great Stu Hart. So as you can see, Toots is still doing his thing, and he's doing his big smart guy decisions, and there's still more to come out of him. We'll get back to him. For now, though, as we know, the business refuses to die. But by the end of the 30s, it was hurting pretty bad for a few different factors, uh, like that Pfeffer interview and a, a couple of other things. Uh, it's going to take a little, little bit of effort, a few new ideas to bring it back. Right, Doc? Yeah, as the 30s wound down, wrestling had long since outlived its first major boom era and was, at least from a business popularity and credibility standpoint, in decline. Uh, multiple factors contributed to this decline, things that we've already mentioned, including the death of one of the great sports promoters, Jack Curley, like Gary was talking about, the economic crisis of the Great Depression that coincided with the era, and perhaps the greatest factor, the uh, Jack Pfeffer New York Daily uh, Mirror expose, which did inestimable damage. That damage probably still permeates to this day. There, you know, I mean, people still the the business became stigmatized. And before, I mean, people like we talked about with the the uh, Opera House tournament, and whatnot, with the Mass Marvel and and this and and this and that. There was there was suspicion, but there was never a stigma like there was because Pfeffer was an insider and he was laying out the guts, man, all the dark, dirty secrets about the chicanery and the tomfoolery and the dirty dealing going on backstage. And it probably still infects the business to this day. But in the 1940s, two significant factors contributed to the resurgence of wrestling as one of the greatest forms of public entertainment and one of the most fiscally solvent performance industries in the world. So two things here, we're talking about wrestling as a publicly acceptable form of entertainment and wrestling as a solvent business. Both of them had been damaged. Both of those factors are going to resurge here in the for in the 40s. Excuse me. Rob's got the hiccups. <laughs> Rob, I keep, I, I keep seeing you stare off to the side there. I know you're watching your Braves, so that, that makes me think of, I mean, one of the big things that you're talking about here as far as uh, professional wrestling. One thing that changed everything for pro wrestling was the advent of the TV getting into regularly into households and that sort of thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the first uh, TV sets were sold in the U S in the 1920s. They'd been invented prior to that, but uh, uh, by the forties television had swept the country and we, we've all seen back to the future and then watching Jackie Gleason and all that. And Michael J. Fox's character is like, yeah, we got four of them. He's like, no, nobody has four TVs or two of them, whatever he says. He's like, no one has multiple TVs, but by the forties television was in full swing and the impact on wrestling was instant and permanent. It was a match made in heaven. This is a quote I'm reading here. This comes from uh, Solomon's uh, the Bible. The, the King James, the King Solomon version, page 50. It was a match made in heaven starting in the late 1940s. Professional wrestling crossed paths with a brand new medium that was about to take the nation by storm and transform the way we experience entertainment. A natural fit for television technology. Wrestling not only benefited from the TV boom, it helped to shape and define it. Colorful characters and their in ring antics were brought into viewers' living rooms for the first time. 
taking a business that had been on life support. This is my words, increasingly relying on gimmickry, women's matches, tag team matches, mud matches that threatened to run the sport into complete obscurity back to Solomon and turning it into a household word. And the emphasis moved more than ever away from genuine grappling and toward flamboyant showmanship. And that's the impact of TV. While shows like I Love Lucy and The Honeymooners became big in the 1950s, in the 40s, wrestling represented an easily produced and highly engaging form of pre-produced entertainment. Sports like boxing and baseball were extremely popular, but wrestling provided characters and narrative. Easily pre-produced, easily packaged. And as uh, the great Dev Meltzer noted, it had colorful characters and something we say quite a bit. It was a very simple morality play. You, you take something like NWA Power right now. It's a perfect example of this because it's still kind of bare bones the way that it's set up. But you can imagine as far as it's sitting in GPB Studios. Wrestling, of course, now is a lot fancier in most places you look. But uh, I would also say this for MLW. They're, they're set up with like three cameras or two to three cameras and uh, you've got your like maybe a hard cam and one's like moving around the ring and that sort of thing. Boxing was, was growing or was huge at this time. Boxing was a big deal. So it's cheap TV. I mean, that's the thing. It's like easy for them to manufacture is what Rob's saying. Like they produce these episodes. Like it's easy to, to film boxing and broadcast it. And the advantage that wrestling has in this scenario is that you get the storyline aspect of it to the morality play like Rob said, or Meltzer said there, uh, which makes it more engaging to the audience. So the networks loved it basically. Yeah. Uh, they, they loved it. And um, we would have a couple of programs that would take this on in particular. Uh, now it's going to permeate. You're going to find this regionally uh, promoted and whatnot, but the two big ones we got to mention are KTLA out of Los Angeles, which became the first ever, to produce professional wrestling content. I know Will's eating this up, man. Airing his <laughs> first show from Olympics Auditorium in 1946. And then you have, after KTLA, you have the greatest and first mega show of the era, which was Wrestling from the Marigold. And we all know that. Most hardcore wrestling fans have seen episodes of this, uh, have heard of it. This was produced by the great Fred Kohler during uh, uh, the 49s through uh, the mid-50s. And it uh, ran on the Dumont Network for about six years, which in that day and age, that's a pretty freaking impressive run for having never done this before. Well, it's either impressive or very unimpressive. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's one yeah. or the other. It's a bit like Pornhub, you know, like they started <laughs> off with like mega productions or like they finally get in there, but then they find like amateur porn works just as well. And so somebody with a handheld can produce just as much storyline as needed could really get your same you know for cheaper production value you know we could go straight to the artist and <laughs> we could produce i don't know i don't know where i'm going with this that is one way to frame it and a very classy metaphor thank you gary yeah well just uh, try to spice this thing up a little bit well we know our audience and now they all understand so that was a pretty good metaphor right yeah and if you need spice, the, the, the producers were doing it. This is, like we said earlier, we're seeing a transition from uh, from grappling, from traditional sportsmanship into showmanship. Sportsmanship into showmanship. That could be the title of this particular episode. Look at the personalities. You've got Ricky Starr, who, according to 
uh, King Solomon was a ballet dancing wrestler from Greenwich Village. You've got Mr. America, Gene Stanley. We've mentioned Antonina Roca, Carl von Hess and Fritz von Erich portraying Nazis. That would not go over today. And then you have perhaps the two greatest. Gosh, man, this is so fascinating. Like, if TV had not emerged, would these two men ever have entered the lexicon? It's hard to tell because they were so colorful, so great, so quintessential wrestling. When we talk about the one true sport, you cannot even begin to fathom that without thinking of the original Nature Boy Buddy Rogers and, of course, the legendary Gorgeous George, the, the the human orchid. I mean, up until then, at this point in history, Rob kind of mentioned it here, but the big bad villains were just generally like whatever evil foreigner people can make out, you know? So it was easy to like, oh, we'll make a Nazi villain or whatever, you know, like some kind of villain just from a different place that wants us to be a, a commie or something, you know? But George, George was different. Yeah, George was, the, again, the, the emphasis moves completely to color, to presentation, because remember, I mean, if you were watching wrestling in the 20s and 30s, you were going to a carnival, you were going to an auditorium, you were going to see athletes grapple on something that might have been real. There were suspicions. The Pfeffer thing really damaged credibility. But for the most part, I think the average, the three of us would have went in wanting to see a fight between big dudes. These were guys that they didn't look like Greek gods like wrestlers look like today. Most of them could have worked at the plant, you know worked full-time at the plant. They were just tough dudes. But now, and also remember that at those times with radio, you would have had a wrestling broadcast over radio. So the visuals aren't as, as big a deal. But now it's different. Now the spectacle of wrestling becomes important. Not only the setting, the ring, the studio, but now wrestlers begin to rely on costumes, on hair color, on ring valets. All these become part of the pageantry. And the greatest of them of all were, of course, uh, Gorgeous George and the the original Nature Boy. I'm about to say the, the real Nature Boy, Paul Lee. That could be the case, too. But, uh, you know, the original Nature Boy, Buddy, Buddy Rogers. But we got to spend some time. We're going to come back to Buddy Rogers, okay? Let's spend some time on Gorgeous George. I promise you we'll come back to Buddy Rogers. But Gorgeous George is arguably the first major wrestling television superstar. He is the granddaddy of them all. Now, I'm not saying he's the first wrestling superstar. We've already seen Hackenschmidt, Frank Gotch, Ed the Strangler Lewis. We've seen big the Mass Marvel. We've seen big personalities. But this is the first guy who is a visual, an aesthetic superstar. He's the first one that brings in the lights, the glitz, the glamour, the color. You know, it didn't start out that way. George Wagner was a a native of Nebraska. He was from the Midwest, the heartland where wrestling really was born at where, you know, Waterloo, Iowa, where the NWO was found. He was from that part of the country, later moved to Houston, Texas. And when he entered the business, he was a traditional hard nosed grappler. He was old school. He was following the old school formula. That's what always worked. That's what moved the business. That's what people knew. But then he began to challenge the paradigm. And I hate using the word paradigm. I hate the word paradigm, but he did. He challenged the paradigm. I don't know what Rob hates here. Like, I don't know. Yeah. You had like hate, hate ons for all these words. I hate that word, man. Paradigm shift. You know, I also hate the word uh, intentional. 
It's like right now in education, everybody's like, oh, we got to be intentional about that. It's like, do what you mean and mean what you say. That kind of, that what you mean? Just say that. Don't uh, Intentional sounds presumptuous and, and pretentious and uh, pedantic. There's a word people don't use a lot. It sounds pedantic. You're just, uh, I'm going to be intentional. Yeah, you're just being pedantic. I don't say that word. I hate that word. Anyway, he was a paradigm shifter, a paradigm changer, an illusion breaker, an illusion establisher, an illusion maker, if you will. In a move of entertainment, foresight, and genius, George Wagner reinvented himself into a brash, arrogant, and I'll let you guys tap in on this, sexually ambiguous character. Now we're talking about the 1940s here. He was a sexually ambiguous character who entered the ring in elaborate robes with makeup, took to taunting the fans and opponents with very feminine gestures and this and that. Adopted ring music, by the way. Can anyone guess what his ring music was? It's the Macho will Man's knows ring this. music. Yeah, is your this. name Will? I don't. My, okay. name, my name's Will. Ring music? I don't know. I, why, how would I know? You're the, you're the doctor. I just. Yeah, but I know you're a big Macho Man Randy Savage fan. Oh, Macho Man's music? And you know what the name of that song is? Pomp and Circumstance. Boom. That's it. Everybody who's ever graduated high school has has walked out of the auditorium where their diplomas and their cap and gown and their tassel to pomp and circumstance. Or walked in or walked out. Or maybe both. He was the it's first. It's weird. To like when I describe that. Will to people, I'm always like, he's a cool guy, but brash, arrogant, and sexually ambiguous. <laughs> so it's, uh, I get that a lot. That's actually my, my the funny thing is you're just I, reading I, I'm my glad you said that, Gary. <laughs> it just so happens. <laughs> It just so happens we've got gorgeous George on the line right now. Oh my gosh, I have dreamt about this conversation. Gorgeous George, you are one of the greats. I mean, you are up there. If I have to put a four, a Mount Rushmore of pro wrestling essentials, I've got you up there. I've got Buddy Rogers. I've got Ric Flair, and I've got Nick Aldis. Welcome to our podcast, Champ. I can only imagine that gorgeous George just. Just goes real flamboyant with it. He does. He does. But I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to Gorgeous George. Hold on. I'm sorry about that, champ. You've never heard him talk. He's like, hello, everyone. I know. I know. Hi. He's actually, he's actually, I mean, for the record, he's he's actually more like, to a nicer guy, it couldn't have happened. No. You know, nope. That's, that's Buddy, buddy isn't Rogers. It? Yeah. yeah Gorgeous George up. is like, you just, hey, here, I've got him on the phone here. Gary, can you take this call, please? Yeah, hey, go- George, George, are you there? Hello, beloved. This is gorgeous, George. Oh, George, it's so good I'm, to hear from you. I, it is your pleasure to have me on the show tonight. Oh, no, it is my pleasure. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, George, uh, we, we were just talking about you and how big of an influence you were on pro wrestling. Well, let me say that I believe that you, the three of you, are a big influence on pro wrestling as well. Wow, you know, I you. just, I, right, right, right. Will it's, it's an integral thing. It's a, uh, it's a genetic thing. It is a, uh, it's, it's a matter of prestige. I suppose I don't go out there and pretend to be something I'm not. I am what I am. And, and the whole world around can recognize greatness when they see it. George, I can't help but notice that you're from like a Midwestern state, but you seem to have a British accent at certain points. <laughs> well, well, you know, I did I did have the best of education in the King's English, or as you might say these days, the Queen's English. 
is 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 what I was raised on, and it's what I speak. And uh, uh, you know, um, uh, you, you guys could learn much from watching the King's speech. <laughs> this is why I don't. This is why I don't do impressions. It's harder than you think. Props to Gary for for pulling it off every week. It's, what uh, are you it's... saying, Will? What are you saying, Will? <laughs> <laughs> Say what you mean. <laughs> Mean what you say? Well, you blame me. Pedantic. <laughs> you sound you sound a bit like a drunk Nick Aldis, George. I know Nick Aldis, and I know that Nick Aldis would never be drunk. And I am <laughs> not drunk. I am. A, you have a you have a, a hard time distinguishing between drunk and refined. Okay, oh, this is the voice is. of someone who is refined, yeah. and that is why every time I come to the ring, I make sure that my valet. My well-paid, well-trained, well-dressed valet desanitizes the ring. I understand you guys are in a global pandemic right now, and that's something that uh, you can you can appreciate and understand. It's about taste. It's about uh, you call it pomp. I call it perspective. I wonder, George, how long this bit's going to go on. Just curious. <laughs> well, <laughs> Gary, you can, you can hang up at any time, and we're all wondering the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think this is great. Uh, I think someday you'll go far, and I hope you stay there. And uh, <laughs> George, you're, you've been wonderful. Uh, you, you have a good rest of your day. I'd like to get, uh, <laughs> I'd like to, I'd like to ask the spirits to send Doctor Stinson back. <laughs> Never thought I'd say that, but <laughs> it should have been more like, "Wow, well, you know." <laughs> it should have been more like that. Hope <laughs> uh, uh, you learn. I'll, yeah. I'll never forget the first time we met, George, but I'm going to keep trying. Uh, <laughs> <this> is, <laughs> Gary, you are on point with your with your dadisms tonight. That's stuff that only dads say. Yeah, well, I got to get some kids, and then they will really be on top of it. Listen, uh, the, the the point we're trying to make here is George was the man. He was it. I mean, as far as professional wrestlers go, uh, he was influencing all of pop culture. Uh, guys like Muhammad Ali took their inspiration from Gorgeous George. He would straight up tell you that. Uh, he was good, but his arrogance, like his attitude, sometimes he would use underhanded tactics. They led people to want to see him get humbled in the middle of the ring. So it was that kind of thing that like led Gorgeous George. I mean, he like by the time uh, 1948 rolled around, Toots Mont and his New York crew that he had made, they were running msg for the first time that wrestling had done that in like 12 years uh george wouldn't actually headline there until 1949 but it's important to realize that there were only a few channels available on tv when you had it and everybody knew who gorgeous george was this is bigger than cena bigger than stole gold this is bigger than anybody gorgeous george was well known uh, I think by the 50s, I read he was making like 100K a year, which adjusted for inflation was like a million bucks a year, which would have made him one of the highest paid athletes in the world. Uh, he could command easily any show he did, like 50% of whatever the gate was, uh, he would get it. Uh, but, you know, th that was good for New York, but not always great for like the smaller regional promoters, exactly. I mean, it was good enough that new ones were springing up all over the place. Uh, one of the cool parts about TV was that it did open a lot of doors. Uh, like with most change, originally promoters didn't want to deal with TV because they thought if you could watch wrestling for free on the television at home, just sitting on your ass, you wouldn't go buy a ticket to wrestling. But it turned out that the opposite of that was actually true. 
people saw their favorites on TV and then they wanted to go see them with that ass in public. So they would start coming out in droves. And uh, so this gave a chance for a lot more regional promotions, but it also, I, I guess, I, I, hopefully I'm not jumping ahead, Doc, but it really started to water down what was provided. And even worse, our lineal champion started becoming all confuzzled. Uh, we'd mentioned in, before in a previous episode in the 30s, the National Wrestling Association, Doc had brought that up. It was created to wrangle in a bunch of the promotions. But that didn't quite do the trick. And so the title that was held by Londos at this point didn't seem to want to be recognized by everybody. So like the smaller promotions, especially since they didn't have any control over getting Londos in their area or whatever, they just started making up their own champions again. And they would just have their own world champion. And that basically started kind of damaging the credibility of wrestling. So somebody needs to do something, Doc. Right, right. Let, let, let me let me let me go back though and, and take issue with something you said here. I feel like uh -oh. we're on the NWA post show. The lineal, <laughs> the lineal-ness was never at dispute. What was disputed was, was whether lineal-ness mattered because you did have all these regional champions. And when, when we get to the NWA, the NWA, I don't want to jump too far too far ahead, but when the first NWA champion, the alliance champion, was crowned, lineal-ness was not as important what was more important was who was the biggest badass so it's not that linealness was linealness has become more important because it just so happens that the biggest badass is the lineal champion it wasn't that those two things that like linealness was disputed we still had no doubt on who held the lineal title i don't think anybody ever doubted that one of the things that always like perplexes me in modern discussions of what the real world's championship is is like people that will say things like we can't really demonstrate the lineal champion. And I'm always like, well, yeah, we really clearly can. What you can demonstrate or what you can dispute is whether that lineal champion was the best wrestler in the world at the time. But what you cannot claim is that the linealness was not there. The linealness is there. We can paint it. We can take it all the way back to the 1860s. What was at dispute was whether the lineal champion was deserving or whether he was the baddest man in the world. And remember, here after... A hundred years of history, lineal is way more important to us now than it was in 1940. Especially if we're if we're plugging the lineal title as beginning formally in around 1905. In 1940, it's not as big a deal as it is in 2021. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's no. not as big a deal. You know, the history isn't isn't as preeminent. What's more preeminent back then when linealness is still relatively new? you know, to today. Time, time is a different commodity. Like today we think of like 9-11 as being in the distant past. You know, I've got my students today, they were born after that. Their generation uh, Z, you know, the Gen Zers were born after 9-11. For us, it's still recent memory. You know, that's because of social media, the internet, all that. In 1940, time moves a lot slower. Think about it. In the Civil War, Ulysses S. Grant, the great savior of the Union, he had way more in common with the ancient Romans than he did with us. He would be much more at home in ancient Rome than he would be just 100 years later or 150 years later or 200 years later. So time moves slower too. So I can't overemphasize the fact that lineal, no one's disputing that Londos had the lineal title. What they were disputing was whether that title mattered. That's the point. All these people are prop up and they say, well, we've got gorgeous George. We've got the, you know, the nature boy, buddy Rogers. We've got this guy. We've got that guy who cares what he has. That title is, is irrelevant. 
here's here's where it be- becomes really interesting for us is because you had two things go on in this era. You had the recovery of wrestling as a valid form of public entertainment through the advent of television. And then you have the saving of wrestling as a form of solvent business. If you had not had TV, wrestling would have still been relying upon mud wrestling, jello wrestling, what they called midget wrestling at the time. I don't like that word. Women's wrestling was still a novelty. Those things, but it would have pushed wrestling into the shadows, into the carnival, back into the carnivals, back into the freak shows, this and that. Had it not been for the formation of the greatest wrestling entity of all time, the the one entity that without which wrestling would not exist today in its modern form, and that is the National Wrestling Alliance. It is the National Wrestling Alliance that heralds the resurgence of wrestling as a stable business venture. This goes back to what we were talking about earlier with the Goldust Trio. In the 20s, they had for a time consolidated wrestling more or less into a major national promotion. But its lifespan was really short-lived. This lasted about, what, six years, Gary? Something yeah, like that? Something like that, yeah. And their influence was far-reaching. It was, it's, we still feel it today, especially with Tootsmont, but it was short-lived. However, on July the 18th, 1948, at the Gold Room of the Hotel President, or Presidente, in Waterloo, Iowa, we saw the representation and emergence of something new, something we had not seen before, something we've talked about a lot, and that is a meta-promotion. You guys uh, that you're listening, I want you to open up your notebooks right now. If you're a tattoos, uh, a tattooist and like to get inked, I want you to go to your tattoo artist and say, put this word on me. If you're a wrestling fan, put this word on me and never let it go away. Put it in thick ink. I want you to put the word meta promotion on you because this is something new. It's something different. It's something that saved wrestling as a business, a collection of organizations and territories agreeing not to cede their independence, not to give up their promotions and their own identity and their local talent, but to concede to a confederation under the auspices of one organization called the National Wrestling Alliance. And under this one organization, we would at least do one thing in common, maybe two, but we would at least recognize one overarching champion, one ring to rule them all. It's pretty insane to think about, but that's the difference. And like, when you think about the NWA, one of the big things that happened for it was just all these different territories. Well, I guess I, you know, we should talk about who the NWA was or who, how, how it became, who, who the founding members, I guess, were. Right. You've got a, basically a conglomeration of Midwestern promoters. Remember, wrestling really got its start in the Midwest, Iowa, Nebraska, Kansas, Missouri during the carnival circuit. So it's appropriate that this association begins there, but it includes uh, promoters like Max Clayton out of Omaha, Nebraska, Tony Stecker, brother of the great Joe Stecker, representing Willie Carbo out of Minneapolis, Minnesota, a name that you guys all know, Sam Muchnick from St. Louis, Missouri, and of course, the first Alliance president, P.L. Pinky George, representing Iowa. And under the terms of the Alliance's charter, the various member promotions would retain large levels of autonomy. They would continue to promote their show, even have their own names. Central States Wrestling, Championship Wrestling out of Florida, Championship Wrestling out of Nebraska. 
you know, loot wrestling out of Montreal. You would have all these promotions that would con- maintain their own independent identity. However, uh, the various territories would agree to share talent. They would agree to blackball talent. They would mutually support one another within reason, but would ultimately, and here's the kicker. This is the thing. They would recognize a single world heavyweight champion, or I might say a world's heavyweight champion, providing the alliance with overarching unity, clarifying an oftentimes confusing and disrupted championship picture, and linking the championship unmistakably to the past. In fact, and this is going to be a little bit contradictory, we'll get to in a second, but in the founding charter and in the opening press defenses of this movement, the founding fathers of the NWA were clear to, to describe this venture as something that was linked to the past. Uh, l- l- let me read a section out of the Hornbaker book real quick. On page 18, describing the founding of the movement, Muchnik wrote regarding the alliance in his column in the ring with Sam Muchnik. He says, the National Wrestling Alliance, by unanimous vote, decided to recognize Orville Brown. We'll get to Orville Brown in a second of Wallace, Kansas, as the world's heavyweight champion. Brown's record of the past 10 years, his lineal claim, and his willingness to meet all recognized challenges were considered. Standing before the alliance members, Brown also agreed to post a substantial cast forfeit, making it mandatory for him to meet any outstanding challenger when ordered to do so by a majority of the members. But the key word there is that he staked a lineal claim. Now, I'm going to dispute his claim. But the point is, he made a lineal claim. He was asserting that the prize that he held went back to Stanislaus Sabisco, uh, Joe Stecker, Ed the Stranger Lewis, and by virtue of Ed the Stranger Lewis, all the way back to Cutler, and therefore Frank Gotch. But Rob's disputing it. Rob's the nay. only person. I said. I said nay. Rob's the only person I know that would use. To, would strengthen his own argument with something that he disagrees with. I've never seen this right. done in history. So, <laughs> well, the argument is that the the NWA, when it's founded, part of the part of the premise was obviously business oriented, but part of the motivation was to clear up the title picture, and they had a deliberate, intentional. I hate that word, but I'm going to use it. Intentional <laughs> aspiration of linking this championship to the past. They wanted to link this title to the shadows, the ghosts, the Robert Johnsons, the Robert Johnson was my favorite wrestler. He's like yeah. the Hulk, Hulk yeah. man. <laughs> <laughs> They wanted to link this to the, the New York Knickerbockers, you know, they wanted to link this. They wanted to root it in history. So mm-hmm. the NWA, since its inception in 1948, has had a backward and a forward orientation. It's viewed itself as moving forward, but rooted in history, which is something new because remember, we appreciate the history, but in 48, there was relatively little formal history to build off of. There was two or three decades. Everybody that was alive, there were people alive that knew not only Ed Lewis, but Evan Lewis. You know what I mean? These are guys that knew that met Frank Gotch. They knew these guys. They they talked with them. Frank Gotch and Evan Lewis may have even attended some of these events. So the religiousness of it, the sacredness of it wasn't there yet like it is today. The reverence wasn't yet there. But the NWA was the first to say, you know what? 
we are deliberately rooting this project in history. And so even though Orville Brown, I don't think, had a legitimate claim to a lineal title, they were still at least trying to attempt to make the claim. And I can at least appreciate that effort, this nod to history. It's like AEW. We don't like to come on here and talk about AEW. I don't appreciate everything they do. I'm not a big fan. But what I am a big fan is their respect for history. They're 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 trotting out Arn Anderson, Tully Blanchard, you know, bringing out the belts, Sting, all this nodding to history that they're doing, these winks, these this respect that they pay. That's what the NWO is doing, and that's what made them different. You mean instead of making like Ric Flair play musical chairs or something like that with <laughs> Stacy <laughs> Keebler? <laughs> well, I can respect anybody who plays musical chairs with Stacy Keebler. But <laughs> and, and if anybody was going to make that work, by the way, if you go YouTube it, I mean, Ric Flair makes it work. I mean, that's just a testament to Ric Flair. But uh, that said, uh, all of this is independent, by the way, of New York. So this is like New York was was booming, you know, and Gorgeous George was hitting on all cylinders. But the thing is with Orville Brown that uh, Rob Rob obviously has some issues with him. But Orville Brown was only around about a year uh, as far as the NWA World's Heavyweight Champion. Yeah, and he was a and and I don't have issue with Orville Brown. I mean, he was a great talent, but let's let's be real. He was a regional talent. What was the championship that he held, Gary? It was the it was like the Midwestern Wrestling Association or something like that. The MWA Championship. He was the MWA Champion. By the way, just out a bit of curiosity, you can go back on our TikToks and and follow this up. That belt the MWA title was the inspiration for the belt that we now know as the Burke. They built that Burke and modeled it after that design. And uh, it's a fascinating thing. You can go onto YouTube. There's an antique roadshow episode where they talk, you know, Orville Brown's son gets up there and they appraised the, the, the belt, the MWA belt that Orville Brown held. That was essentially really the first NWA championship belt. And uh, it, it's, it's priceless. But anyway, um, <laughs> Horrible. You had a girl's belt. No, 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 no. That's a beautiful belt. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Well, it's no, funny, we... Gary. You, you say that. If I'm about to have to do Orville Brown or Mildred Burke. But it just so happens either. that I have Orville Brown, Midwesterner, on the phone right now. Hey, is this Rob? Rob, stop hey, Orville Brown. Hey, man. What's going on, boy? <laughs> I'm doing all right, man. I'm just out here. I was, in a, I, was in a, I was meeting in a piece of corn, and uh, I was thinking about you. I figured I'd give you a call to see what you was over here talking about. I know he's doing the wrestling thing. <laughs> man, tell me about that belt, man. That belt's beautiful. Oh, it's good. It's a diamond, I, you know what, what it is? It's got diamonds on it. That's what really makes it special is a diamond belt. And uh, there's, I, 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 I did it like 10 times. 10 times, son. You ever seen somebody win a belt 10 times? That's that's what I did. I had 10 times Midwestern Wrestling Association. It's really the only belt anybody cares about. So that's why I was also the national the national world champion. <laughs> As Trevor Murdoch would say, <laughs> the national world champion. Hey, that, that picture in the middle, I gotta ask, man, where, where'd you get the picture from? You, was that a Polaroid or what? I mean, that's you got a beautiful picture of yourself right in the middle of the battle at a, at a time where I imagine that. Photography was quite expensive. It's expensive, but it's made of diamonds. Rob, I'm the national world champion. 
And they made a diamonds and so you just cash in one of those and you put something else into place and then you, you, you get your picture made. Ain't got no cell phones like y'all got now. Uh, but it's just, it's, it's, you know, anyway, it's, it's, I, I made it happen. That's all that really matters. Ask, ask some questions I know the answers to. How about that? Will is looking over there. Will is just perplexed, man. Will is like, I don't know if he's disgusted or, or what. Will, I know you got a champion for a question for Orville Brown. You know, I, <laughs> <laughs> this is so. This is this is this is entertainment for me. I, I I like check out. I listen to you guys. I learn, and then I yeah. So I'm not prepared. I'm honestly just so starstruck, Mr. Brown, uh, that you would join us here. Tell us tell us what made the MWA different than the NWA. And why 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 was M- MWA where you chose to 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 make your bed? That's a that's a great question. Will hold hold still for a second. I'm trying to imagine you with a personality. Uh, the uh, the thing is, the MWA. No, I'm just kidding. Will you? I just thought you was asleep up until now. <laughs> uh, then Rob's gonna beat. <laughs> He's the one who put me on the spot here, and then he just walks out. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> Orville Brown on the phone. I'm like, oh, I didn't know. I was doing an Orville Brown impersonation. <laughs> Rob, you need a kiss on the neck from a crocodile, Rob. <laughs> Where are you getting all these dad points? Like, did you start following a new Reddit? Too much. Yeah, I, I just read too many of these. Oh my god! Why did he walk away? I have no. He's probably refilling his drink again. He's got a. He was oh, starting he's... to sober up. <laughs> <laughs> he's got the metabolism of a six-year-old. Nah, man. If I if I didn't go pee, I was gonna have to pee in my Darth Vader mug, which I'm not gonna say I have. I'm not gonna say I haven't before. But I'm especially not gonna say I haven't. <laughs> so well, next time we're at, next time we're at uh, the Casa de Stinson, and he offers us some coffee in the Darth Vader <laughs> mug. We're gonna take a hard pass on that one. <laughs> this is the cha- This is the chamber pot. We don't drink out of this. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> some poor person's a- collector's item is Rob's piss cup. Is that a Harry <laughs> Harry Potter reference? I'm dog on Pawn Stars, man. One day, twenty years down the road. <laughs> After we've made our name in the NWA. Yeah, this right here. Hey, hey, Chumley. This right this here Rob is the Vincent. actual Dr. Rob Chamber Pot. He <laughs> pissed in this the night that they interviewed Orville Brown <laughs> on the fire. And I've got and it all it also call, comes with an MP3 flash drive containing that episode. You can hear MP3 it in the background. Flash drive. Because <laughs> oh. this was happening back in 97. It's got a Microsoft Zoom. <laughs> anyway, uh, Orville's look, gone. Orville's what? gone. Look, we took a little break. Orville's gone. <laughs> Orville was uh, was selected to be the first NW World Champion at this meeting, and the reason he was selected was because he was a Midwestern, as as uh, he pointed out in recall, he had won this championship ten times. That beautiful diamond belt. I do buy impersonations might- with actual facts. Yeah, 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 it's fantastic. Thank you. You might wonder why wasn't Luthes? Luthes actually held the lineal title. It was indisputed. He, this was the, the 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 title that Luthes held was the championship that goes back to Frank Gotch and and Charlie Cutler. That was the title. We can demonstrate that. I've got magazine articles. I've got Dave Meltzer resources. We can make this case. I promise you, we can. Why was Luthes not chosen to be the champion? 
I don't know the answer to that, actually. Why wasn't Luke? Well, you weren't supposed to say anything. That's a rhetorical question. Oh, you're supposed to. That was a dramatic pause. Oh, well, you got to clarify. You got to hold your hand up like <laughs> this. Dramatic. Because earlier you were making pause. like you got mad at me for guessing. And then you really did want Will to guess like on the music <laughs> for Gorgeous Shorts. So we don't know. We don't know what you're like, playing. Because I asked Will. I didn't ask you. Okay. The reason is because Luthez actually at the formation of the NWA, Luthez was a rival promoter. He was suspicious of the enterprise. Uh, let me, can I, can I read, indulge me for a second? Let me read straight from Hornbaker. I don't want to mess this up. He says that in the publicity war, Pinky George discredited the merits of Thez's championship in December 24, 18 edition of the Waterloo Courier saying, now, this is Pinky George saying this of Luthez now. He says, his title claim is the most ridiculous of all. This is all promotion now. I remember Lou when he used to wrestle for me in Waterloo and was my chauffeur from town to town. Thez is a nice kid. We even used him in Des Moines in a preliminary or two. He has no basis for a title claim in my side, except for the fact that he had the belt that, that was the basis of the title claim. Thez was becoming more and more aware of the promoters leaving his syndicate to join the NWA, a myriad of entrepreneurs were connecting to the faction, and Lou fought fire with fire in Kansas City, Dubuque, Des Moines, and Wichita, trying to keep his main hamlets, Houston, Dallas, Indianapolis, Memphis, and of course St. Louis in line. He was on a brutal schedule and was lo losing ground each day. The maneuvering of the Alliance members was slowly taking a dominant share of the market and some of Thez's reliable American partners were considering membership themselves. There was no stopping the momentum of the NWA. The point is, Brown was the likable darling of the Midwest, not Thez. Thez was a competitor. And therefore, at the end of the day, when the NWA founders look to a champion, even though they're rooting the title in the past, it's not the holder of the lineal champion that they give the nod to. It's Orville Brown because Thez is, in fact, competition. Well, that's interesting. Thez is leaked to history for good reason. Thez is, is a badass. I mean, there's a reason he has the lineal championship. I mean, the guy, he, he learned like Greco-Roman from his father, I read. He learned like uh, Ad Tell. We haven't even talked about. We probably won't right now. But I mean, he like literally like, I think kind of kicked out of Japan because he went over there with every martial artist ass uh, over in Japan. And he taught him like catch wrestling. And then he finally, he learned hooking like to be a hooker from Ed, the Strangler Lewis. <laughs> so, uh, and Ed, the Strangler Lewis is basically like his manager. So Orville Brown hangs onto the belt for like about a year. But then unfortunately for Orville, he does end up in a tragic car accident. And it kind of ends his his run. So yep. Orville's Orville's out, and they need somebody else. This is this is, I think, and I don't want to sound heartless here. It's an it's tragic in the sense that Orville Brown really was one of the greats. He really was chosen not indiscriminately, but because he was one of the biggest names, one of the most popular stars of the day. I liken him to Magnum TA. He was the Magnum TA of the day. He had that same star power. He got what Magnum didn't, which was the belt, but his career ended under similar uh, tragic circumstances. And I don't wish that on anybody. So don't mistake me, okay? But it was fortuitous that this happened because 
the way with, that we understand the NWA today is we understand the NWA as being the entity that is the the guardian, the the protector, the manipulator, the owner, the operator, the protector of the real true world's championship. And the basis of that claim has since been has since its founding in 1948 been that it's rooted in history. We just read the the quote from Muchnick himself. And I think that when Orville Brown's career was ended. This gave an opportunity, an, a, a, a for you know a, a, a tragic opportunity, but still an opportunity for the NWA to correct that. By this time, Luthis had read the tea leaves. He saw what was happening, and if you can't beat them, you join them. And with the absence of Orville Brown, the NWA corrected the the mistake, and they placed the championship on Luthis, which is why we can say that the NWA title is the lineal championship. It began with Orville Brown. That little aberration was not lineal, but when they placed it on Thez, who already held the lineal title, now we've got some congruence. It's kind of like you look back in the Bible, and I'm not trying to preach anybody, but everybody, according to the Bible, descended from Adam, but they also descended from Noah, if you know what I'm saying. The lineal championship, well, yeah, to you make know, kinky like that. <laughs> right. The lineal championship was there. Then you have What's up, this baby? interruption. I'm no, uh, better get on this yeah. arc. You afraid of getting wet? Yeah. Nah, let's not do that. <laughs> you gotta get struck. Down. Let's not do that. <laughs> let's not be irreverent. <laughs> I just had to test. Yeah, you gotta edit that to test, out. You gotta, had to test the waters, so to speak, Rob. Oh, you sounds like to we got that out, bro. What's we got Noah on the phone? Oh, Noah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Rob's, yeah. Rob's checking out. He's like, okay, I can't do this. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the cool part about Luthez, I thought, Rob, was that, uh, you know, Orville mm-hmm. Brown, right before his accident, one thing he was set out to do was he started going out and they were wrestling all over the territories. He was like trying to line up those, all those championship claims. He was trying to unify the titles. So every territory right. that thought they had a world champion, he was going in there and, and taking it so that they could get like one singular unified champion. Now he got in that accident when Luthez took over, he continued that process. Like he, he continued Correct. going ahead and, and lining those up and, and people love Luthez. I mean, now nowadays people love Luthez even more, but Luthez was, he was not unlike how you see with say the NWA right now compared to a WWF or WWE. Sorry. Luthez was, Simple, like robe, towel around his neck, walk into the ring. Like, here, I'm here to tie somebody up. I'm here to stretch them. I'm here to win a match. You know, it was no nonsense. He did, he hated, he, he was, he had no love for gimmicky stuff. He was not a fan of your gorgeous Georges and your, uh, Buddy Rogers. He was, he was, he was serious business. He believed in, wrestling traditional wrestling like he he believed in being a tough guy and taking people out not to say he was like an a-hole about it but he he rooted himself in history in professional wrestling so that was one of the cool things about him uh, the other thing i wanted to mention too that i think was really important is sam muchnick who you know at this point uh had become president of the nwa and so luthez and sam muchnick i would say are, are kind of linked like they're probably the thing that made the NWA at its height, like the str- the strongest thing in pro wrestling uh, that 
you know, because Muchnick is managing all these people, uh, all these promoters. You know, you can imagine how difficult it is. Like if you've got to get Vince McMahon and Tony Khan and Court Bauer and uh, Billy Corgan and whoever else, you know, like all these owners of these wrestling companies to all agree on who's the guy that's going to bounce around and be the champion, that that's probably not an easy task to achieve. So at this time, Sam Muchnick is the one who's booking where Luthez goes, when he goes, like how he, you know, to keep everybody happy and stuff like that. So he plays probably as important a role as Luthez in as far as the NWA goes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The link between them is, is, is solid. And we're going to see in, in future uh, episodes, how this kind of goes on and builds and builds on. And Luthez is going to be one of the uh, indispensables. He's going to be one of the greats and one of the stalwarts of the NWA. Uh, but I, I guess I guess this probably before we I don't know if you want to venture into capital wrestling now or if we want to save that for later. But maybe we could round this out by talking about who who rounds out the top five in the power rankings of this era. Gary, where, where do you want to go with this? Yeah, I think we probably round it off here uh, that, you know, before we get into capital wrestling and all of that, uh, essentially, as we get into the power rankings, I mean, the thing to know about the NWA at this point is like once Luthis gets the title, they're at their peak. And what it is, uh, the important part for newbies that don't know this kind of stuff, I mean, the NWA, what they did is there were territories now. And Luthez was the world champion. He was recognized as the world champion. And he could bounce around from territory to territory being the world champion. So each territory could operate independently, like Rob was talking about earlier. But there was one recognized world champion. This, this benefited in a lot of ways, but I mean, it, it, it meant, you know, big ticket sales when the world champion was coming into town for like whatever territory. So that was part of what Muchnick was doing was managing that, like when Luthez showed up in your town and that sort of thing. Um, also, the NWA worked in a way that they uh, they got into some trouble for because they would they would basically say, like, uh, you're the promoter here in uh, the mid-Atlantic for instance. And if somebody else tries to start a wrestling promotion over there, we'll send all our best guys over there. I mean, we get more into this later, but they kind of ran into it pretty early on and and dealt with some government stuff pretty, pretty early with, you know, them operating uh, like a, like the mafia, essentially. Like you had these crime bosses that sat at the top of the national wrestling Alliance. And that's all like a deeper topic. For later, but essentially they kind of ran it that way. Uh, but Luthez was the top dog. And so there you have it. You're in here. Luthez is the real world's champion and the NWA is the top wrestling entity. Uh, as we always say uh, on the NWA podcast, the, the, the greatest pro wrestling entity of all time. Like this is as big as it gets basically at the time. So let's, uh, let's look at the top five, man, uh, for this era. And, some of these names uh, we've not really gotten into, uh, and 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 we'll probably see a repeat of this, or at least a, a fleshing out of this in in the next uh, podcast episode. But when we close out the 1940s with the formation of the NWA, the National Wrestling Alliance, your top five are gonna are gonna be number five, Gorgeous George, the impact that he's making on the West Coast, especially out in California, is uh, in. It's incomparable. Then you have Pat O'Connor and Whipper Billy Watson, 
who are going to be engaging Luthez for that NWA championship. You've got Antonino Roca, who is to who is the foil to Gorge George. What gorgeous uh, what gorgeous George is on the West Coast, Roca is on the on the East Coast. And number two, we got Vern Gagne. Now Vern Gagne was was big in uh, the Midwest, Minnesota, that area. Uh, we've not really heard much of him yet. We're going to hear, hear uh, more of him in the future. But at this point in in the late forties, early fifties, he is making his mark, and he is clearly at least the number two, if not the number one wrestler in the world. But we have to reserve that number one spot for the man that holds that world's championship, and that is Luthez. Now, Orville Brown could easily be on here if he hadn't suffered that horrific and tragic career-ending injury. But as you know, you know his, his impact, his national-level impact was so short that you know he's not going to make this top five. Luthez is going to be the man that's going to round out the number one of the power rankings of the late 40s, early 50s. All right. Well, there you have it. Uh, so the the big thing that uh, we were kind of debating on moving on into is uh, with Capital Wrestling. Uh, as you can imagine, uh, the NWA, I, I guess where we wanted to really end this episode is they were on top. They were the big dogs. And uh, of course, there's so many stories and so many details that we're, we're missing out on. on so it's, it's hard to decide what details to throw in and what details to leave out. But basically we want to kind of end with Luthez on top, the NWA on top. And uh, as we go, you'll start to see how that splinters a little bit in the next episode and the rise of these other promotions that would start to appear. And as we get into, uh, we'll move a little fast in the next episode. I think, I think we'll get ourselves pretty much in the next episode. It sounds weird. Like we're at the end of the fifties here or, or they're getting into the fifties. And uh, I think we'll move pretty quick in the next episode all the way into like the 70s and headed to the 80s. I believe we'll be able to kind of move through there because of the way wrestling works. Anyway, so uh, we'll be talking about uh, the rise of the McMahons, the Ganyas, the all of that stuff in the next episode. So make sure you tune into that to part seven. But uh, thanks for being here for part six. This is uh, pro wrestling history. Will, it's been good having you here. Sad. Hey, this thanks. is Will Martin. Yeah, you know. Well, you know, I, I'm I'm glad we had our time to catch up at the beginning before you guys launched in. But just like I say every week, I I am here to learn with everyone else. You guys are putting in the legwork and putting all this together. So props for that. Uh, I'm enjoying the ride, learning a lot. I do have my pro wrestling FAQ and my Tim Hornbaker book here and following along as best I can. So it's, it's really cool, man. It's cool to see how all this evolved and um, where, where we go from here, how we got from, from there to here. And uh, so I am anxious to start diving into some of these topics. So you, you keep mentioning this, but I mean, you guys definitely subscribe, stay tuned because some of this stuff that, that, you know, we're glossing over, uh, we'll do some deep dives at some point and really get into some of the nuance and um, the, the details behind some of these characters. Cause there's so many colorful characters that have come out of all this that uh, I'm anxious to get into. And uh, as always, the man with the real knowledge, and I'm just trying to catch up. It's uh, Dr. Stinson over there. Doc, thanks for uh, bringing it this week. Great. All right. Well, that's that. This is Dr. Stinson on all the social that's media. That's what's up, bro. Hold on, man. That's what's up. <laughs> he's got. He's got that. He's got that internet. 
going on that spectrum yeah, internet that rural georgia <laughs> internet going on yeah yeah uh, farm internet man i got i got a uh, possums and dog <laughs> on uh, anteaters and stuff walking around my backyard right now that's uh that's beautiful all right well i'm at this is gary horde the show of course is at tipw show and uh we hope you guys uh hang out with us and check us out on the uh, tuesday night right after nwa power you can watch the post show the official nwa post show that we host and uh we'd love to have you there for that for the chat and uh i guess that is about it so until next week everybody enjoy your gravy cake